Oh my gosh, look, you guys, your cars are late again. I'm sure Mr. Leo's having an affair with the maid. I saw him follow her into the laundry room. Ew, he's so fat, that red nose. Totally an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, and what about the Hessians? You know they're Nazis. They're Nazi sympathizers, Bonnie. They had a fit when the Schwartzmans tried to join the tennis club. <laughs> <laughs> nice aluminum siding. Do they really think that looks okay? You know Mr. Krieger's ordered that from TV late at night. <laughs> Look, it's the Valdino's barbecue tree stump. I have never seen them barbecue on that thing. <laughs> Actually, it's an escape tunnel for Sammy the shark. It leads to a river where he keeps a speedboat. Well, yeah, I mean, Paul goes down there all the time. He can get into anyone's basement with the storm source. Go away. Yeah. Cool. Episode 73 of the Cult of Matt and Mark Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. Make sure to visit our website or our blog at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com or shoot us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. Show news? You got any show news this week? Uh, I don't. Ah, you're sick. That's some show news. Yeah, I know. I make a terrible sick person. I do nothing but piss and moan and whine and... Cry and uh, get oh angry. God. Yeah, I'm, I'm you, like you, a big baby. Do you think that gets you anywhere? No, I just get pissed. What? What are you mad at? Just everything, the world, and everyone in it. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. Well, uh, I, I got a little show news. We got a comment. Uh, we have, I think, five or six of our reviews up on YouTube. And uh, gentleman who goes by the tagline Blackbriar 2013 uh, wants to correct you. About the murder of Matthew Broderick. Uh, oh yeah, good because yeah. I'm actually technically wrong. I think I think you, he's probably uh, going to tell you what you already know. But uh, that Broderick wasn't drunk. He was driving on the opposite side of the road. Was in Ireland. He wasn't used to driving on that side, and uh, that was the cause of it. So confirm, deny. What do you, what do you think? Well, he's still a murderer, <laughs> even if he wasn't drunk. What, a murder of uh, fine, uh, high-concept cinema, like Godzilla 2000 or whatever that was? <laughs> no, more like a murder of somebody in Ireland. Okay, well, I guess we're all murderers in our own little way. Yes, it, we're all guilty. Especially if you don't buy fair trade coffee, I'm telling you folks. If you don't buy fair trade, if you're buying Folgers, you're murdering the third world slowly. So uh, You're murdering the third world slowly just by existing. There's only one solution to just to stop doing that. Yeah, by starting up my car in the morning and driving to work, I just like probably murdered a tenth of the Maldives. You know, so your very know. existence. As I, as I've said to people in the past, you know what the best thing you could do for the planet is kill yourself. Kill yourself. All yeah. right, which it's a good segue into our uh, movie this week, uh, which is. The Virgin Suicides, directed, uh, I think this is the freshman directorial debut of Sofia Coppola, the daughter of the renowned Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, And let's see, it was released in 1999, so way back, 14 years ago. Yeah, it seems newer than that for some reason. seems fresher. Well, I think it's because it's a period piece and was supposed to take place in 75, so it gives a little bit of timelessness in that regard uh, it just feels real modern it certainly doesn't feel dated i think this is a little bit of a timeless movie strangely well the subject matter is definitely not uh topical it's kind of transcendent 
and all that. So let me get into the plot rundown. In sharp response to the lax moral milieu of the mid-1970s, Ronald and Sarah Lisbon, played by James Wood and Kathleen Turner, keep their five alluring adolescent daughters on a short leash by embracing religion and pushing away the opposite sex. But when the youngest, uh, played by Hannah Hall, unaccountably commits Harry Carey and a wayward elder sister, Kirsten Dunst, violates curfew, Sarah pulls all the girls under a virtual house arrest. So... Uh, long on the short of it. Uh, well, that was certainly on the short of it end of yeah, the uh, spectrum. Yeah. Harry Carey in the most elaborate form, I would say. Um, more like, a, what, what do you call that when you fall out of a window onto a wrought iron gate of some kind? Uh, I just call it suicide. Oh, all right. You know, there's a word for throwing somebody out a window, and I'm going to get it wrong. Yeah, defenestrate. Yes, defenestrate. So you could self-defenestrate. I suppose. Auto-defenestration. Uh, auto-defenestration. Yeah, that's how David Carradine died. It was really embarrassing. Yeah. He auto-defenestrated himself out of the door <laughs> of, a, uh, of a small closet. Uh, so, uh, anyway, I don't know where we wanted to start talking about this film. Uh, we can kind of go in a little bit of the background. Uh, it was a novel first. Actually, Rose read the novel. Um yeah, I wonder. I wonder about this movie. Really, a lot of the movies I've seen, this one really seems very. Well, they just leave so much of the prose from the novel intact with the heavy use of the uh, voiceover. Well, and a little window into how the book was written. Uh, it was written in an interesting way. It was multiple voice, first person. Uh, however, the voices of the first person uh, aren't, I guess, specified in the text. So it's basically the first person told amongst those five boys in the neighborhood without any one boy uh, taking a lead in uh, the narration. Since it's all kind of observation from across the street and at school, there's no need to really, uh, I guess, put a single character in a certain situation, you know, well, so. they don't really make much except for some of the um, peripheral boys that aren't the narrators of the story. They really don't differentiate the narrators much at all. They don't make no. much of a point about their names. I mean, they make a serious point so far as to use on screen text and, uh, you know, slow motion to name each of the five girls very specifically. But the boys are sort of left undefined. I guess that's sort of a nice way because that's how the book left it, as you said, because in order to tell it in the first person, you sort of leave need room for the reader to insert themselves into that perspective. Right. Yeah. Uh, actually, the narration throughout the film was done by and I, I, I now that I know the name, it's it's pretty obvious. But Giovanni Rabisi was. The yeah, narrator. I thought that was interesting. I noticed that just as I was watching the credits carefully after the viewing for this podcast. Uh, it was funny because Rose watched it with me and she was like. It kind of sounds like a young David Duchovny, but now that I think about it, there's a little bit of that nasal, uh, nasal, nasal baritone, and in the, in the, yeah. it, it works well. And uh, he wasn't in the movie, I don't believe, right? He didn't. Uh, no, show no, up. he was strictly the narrator. Boy, you you watched one with uh, Rose? That's exciting. Well, she read it, so I didn't even read the book. So you know, I, I said, "Do you want to watch?" She the read Virgin it recently Suicides? or some time ago? Some time ago. She's strangely read like a lot of the books that some of my favorite movies uh, were based on. Like uh, she read American Psycho, she read Virgin Suicides. So, 
Um, but she reads. Well, you certainly. Um, how do you pronounce the the, the uh, writer's name? Eugenie. Oh, I, I haven't even looked here. Um, hold on. But anyways, you could bust out his whole catalog pretty easily. He's only written three books. Jeffrey Eugenides. I'm going to just call Eugenides. I'm going to put the emphasis on the last syllable there. Yeah. Uh, well, she reads fiction, and I read sci-fi. So that kind of makes exposes her to a lot of stuff that I'm not really exposed to, since that's not my medium, or that's oh, yeah. not my genre, or actually, this isn't really genre. Anyway, I'm rambling. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of the film background. Uh, so it was done in an interesting narrative style that I think worked really well in integrating the novel into the movie. Um, strange little anecdote. If it wasn't for Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, this movie may have never gotten made because he was the one that uh, gave Sofia Coppola the novel originally, and then she sort of took it and ran. So She did, she made the, the adapted screenplay. Isn't she credited as doing that? Yeah, she wrote it. I guess at the time another company had the rights to it or something and had written mm. – the script and she was i guess devastated but then they read hers and thought it was better and then uh used that and then she became the director etc and so on so i'm sure her father producing the movie had nothing to do with it absolutely nothing to do with it uh as we know nepotism has no place in hollywood or corporate america so well the thing with nepotism sometimes it works out it certainly worked out in the case of this film yeah well you know i think sophia coppola went on to show her chops with uh, oh, Lost yeah. in Translation. Yeah, Lost in Translation, I think, was her finest film. I, I don't really know. Oh, she did uh, another Kirsten Dunst movie. What's the one about the... Oh, Marie shit? Antoinette. I yeah. never did see that. It's not and bad. And Schwartzman in it, which I thought I might enjoy quite a bit, but I haven't seen it. It's not bad. No, it's not you bad. It's it? worth a watch. If it's on, it has a contemporary soundtrack, which is a little weird, but, uh, you know, um, I don't... I don't really, I'm not fascinated by Marie Antoinette, so I didn't really kind of give a rip too much about sort of the character profile, but uh, it had some nice visuals, and I don't know. They they, they definitely, uh, the production design was, was was pretty on top of it, so it's it's mm. worth a watch. And I don't know what she's done late. I think she had a bomb. I don't, I don't know what uh, that film Yeah, was, she's but. done some other films. Uh, I think there's one in production right now, but uh, okay. I, I haven't made a point of seeing it. I've only seen those two. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of the, the, the background of the film. There was some actresses who, uh, were up for a few roles and then they got, uh, usurped by, uh, you know, like Alicia Silverstone was up for Mary Lisbon. Um, Kim Basinger was up for Sarah Lisbon, which I think would have might have worked better. Mary uh, Lisbon? Oh, I Sarah, see. the mother. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I see. Cause, uh, uh, Catherine Turner isn't as alluring, like the, the genetic, uh, flow doesn't seem to be there necessarily with the uh, the Lisbon girls as much, but uh, well, that's isn't that sort of a, one of the points? I mean, in the VO, he makes a point that they don't know how those two created such beautiful creatures. Oh yeah, okay, sure. I, yeah, I, don't, well. I thought she I thought she was really effective. I mean, I think Kathleen Turner is a pretty top tier actress, and I think she sort of gotten the Hollywood sort of given her the poo poo because she didn't keep a super skinny figure and get a bunch of plastic surgery. And, be quite honest yeah. with you, I think she's very effective in this film, and I think the the two of them, uh, Woods and her, make a really nice case for this uh, dysfunctional parenting that I guess sort of is at least one yeah. of the hearts of this film. And so uh, I, I got a certain amount of respect for her. I know she's had some problems with alcohol, I think, too. Has she? Which is maybe why she's looking a little jowly. 
in this uh, that, movie. Does, does alcohol make you jolly? Yeah, it'll sort of uh, bloat your face up. You know, it, I guess something I, work, I mean, usually alcoholics, you have to, sometimes you take a lot of calories in with all that drinking. Ah, uh, that's true. Drink. Yeah. Yeah, my doctor told me that uh, my nightly scotch is the equivalent of a Twinkie, which I was sort of uh, taken aback by. Yeah, I've been look, I've been meaning to look into the uh, metabolism of ethanol, and I guess I'm not really sh- seeing where uh, uh, the liver converts uh, ethanol into sugar. Uh, I really got to look into that. Well, my I dad mean, it seems told- like it's possible. I mean, it's just you know ethanol is you know it's mostly just a two part carbon chain, so you could probably link it up into a sugar. Without my too dad much uh, gave me some bullshit story about how. Uh, in Richard Burton's later years, all he was doing was metabolizing alcohol to stay alive, and then his spine turned to crystal and he died. And I was like, I don't know, Dad. I mean, even as a kid, I thought that was bullshit. But that's that's kind Sounds of Sounds legit. Yeah, Sounds he, legit. Bull, bullshit is his currency, you know, his social currency. And he, I like uh, that about your dad. <laughs> cracks me up. Yeah, there's many of them. Like uh, chihuahuas were bred to hunt bears in northern Mexico. That was one of my favorites. Uh, you, the list goes on. Your dad does two things. He uh, he eats sand dunes for breakfast, and he makes up bullshit for the rest of the day, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, he's a tall tailor, I guess, if that's a, a, a noun. Uh, he exaggerates, and uh, he kind of steps up the exaggerations to the point where he believes his previous exaggeration, and then he adds a little bit more sugar on top. So, uh, you know, I, th- I had a conversation, a really boring conversation about our furnace, uh, I replaced my furnace recently, and he was having problems with his. And he was like, well, you know, it's a 20-year-old furnace. And I was like, no, I think he got that about 10 years ago. Or he said it was a 30-year-old furnace. And I said, mm-hmm. no, Dad, it was a, probably a 15-year-old furnace. And I kind of caught him flat-footed, and it wasn't like a big deal. But then he had to kind of rewind. I felt a little bad. I kind of cornered him a bit. So, you know, with a really uh, – Oh, he should have said that. Oh, I bought it used, man. It was in pristine condition. It installed for 20 years. It was it was old, new stock. So it really was manufactured 30 years ago. But they forgot it in the back of their warehouse. You know, it's a funny story. Uh, yeah, see, he, he's, not, with- <laughs> he's not that, like, swift-footed. He, he uh, believes the bullshit, which is kind of endearing to a certain uh, point. Well, you, he doesn't- you do need – you need to believe it at the time you're spouting it to a certain extent. That's a pretty important part of it. Yeah, he, he knows he's not pulling one over on you because he actually is in the moment. And so then he has to stop. He's not, he's not like, dancing like you just did. So, anyway. <laughs> um, okay, so, oh, and Josh Hartnett was in it. He, uh, he played the, enig- well, not the enigmatic, the, uh, what would you call the Trip Fontaine character? The uh, uh, Pussy Magnet. Yeah, that guy, man. He's what I, Borat was. He was what Borat was looking for when he was buying that Hummer in the movie Borat. The push, pushy magnet. Pushy Where magnet. Is the yeah. pushy magnet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, so how did how did you feel about Trip? I mean, I really I loved. Uh, the two scenes where they go and talk to the future trip while he's in uh, drug rehab or something along those lines. Yeah, he's in like a recovery, alcohol recovery or something like that. Yeah, I just, I, I really, I really enjoyed that perspective. But boy, how, how, you know, we were talking about hating women a little bit a couple of weeks ago. Or was it last week? <laughs> well, you know, that's a constant conversation of ours because we're well-known misogynists in our community. And, um, but I, I was wondering, I watch it. Do you hate those guys that are pussy magnets more than than women? 
Well, maybe in my youth when I was in competition with those guys, I've long since come to peace with uh, my place in the universe. But, oh, yeah. Could you just was, imagine women coming to you and throwing themselves at yeah, you? Yeah, there was like it blows uh, my mind. A, a jealousy I had in high school. And I think it was uh, perpetuated by the media that uh, hooking up, getting chicks, uh, that teenagers were just sort of, you know, at the whim of their hormone and it was just one giant orgy, you know. And uh, I was like, man, I can't even get like a second tier chick to talk to me in the hall, uh, let alone a first tier, you know, of the popular crowd. And when they Man, I was striking out in the special education class. (laughs) You were in competition with Joe from the movie. That was (laughs) Oh, I love the Joe scene, but go go ahead about the hatred of uh, Uh, of Trip. uh, so it's it was so foreign and alien. Uh, there was a jealousy there, but like I think being an attractive, hyper attractive adolescent boy uh forms your character you don't create the shtick the lines the moves you, you you the environment shapes you and you roll with it at that point so at that at that level i just kind of viewed them as aliens they were guys in the stratosphere who they were landing on the moon and <laughs> i i just you know there's just no way to relate is that is so, that a euphemism landing on the moon i like well, that yeah is that like is that for like is that like a butt sex Euphemism? Jesus, man. No, that's the dark side of the moon. Nobody lands there. No, that's there. the dark yeah. side of the moon. Right. No, but uh, so, you know, I, I, I guess there's a jealousy, um, but no more of a jealousy than, than like, it was intangible for me. So I didn't, I didn't relate. I couldn't relate. And uh, um, I think it, and they were just kind of the, you know, the big hooks in the sea that were grabbing all the fish and I was bottom feeding or not feeding at all. And uh, you were just you know, starving, just, slowly starving to death. Yeah, I'm mixing my metaphors. But anyway, that, that that was kind of the deal with me. So I don't know. How did it, how did the whole Trip Fontaine uh, character? Uh, what did you think of him? Well, I hate him. I hate Trip Fontaine more than I hate women. I have to say. <laughs> well, I'll give you that. Yes. Yeah. Well, they don't. Especially, I mean, they, they, especially women he sort are, of uses Lux, right? Right. I mean, sort of, uh, his goal is just to fuck her, and he fucks her, and that's that. Well... In a way, he's sort of responsible for everything going to hell in the last third of the movie. Yeah, you're right. He is the, uh, I guess, the, uh, what do you want to call it? What uh, what plot mechanism is Trip Fontaine? He's a catalyst for the implosion. Yeah, yeah, he's he's the he's the thing that, not that, not that, uh... Uh, Mrs. Uh, Lisbon needs much of a catalyst, but uh, he's certainly plenty. So, well, okay. So you you think he just kind of pulled the typical dick move of you know the the alpha male, just kind of yeah. fucking and wandering away. Well, he just wanted to get his seed out. Well, is that really what happened to him? Yeah, that's really what happened to him. Well, he can had wax it. on later. That it was true love and blah 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 yada yada yada. The fact is, he's a dumb shit. I mean, pussy came to him on the platter. I don't think he understands it any more than anybody else. He just happened to get a big portion of it. Well, the thing that I... Okay, so I had a little bit different take. There was that about that character. But uh, there's a a thing about the hunt, about pursuit, 
of especially when you're kind of in those initial two weeks, two to three weeks of a, a new relationship, uh, anticipation and uh, you know you get a little further every 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 night, and uh, you know your imagination runs wild. And that's especially true when you're younger because your imagination is uh, much more fecund than, like, you know, a 40-year-old's like mine, which is more or less a desert wasteland at this point. But you have sort of this anticipation. And when you actually cross the finish line, everything is anticlimactic because what you've built up in your head is never uh, going to compete with reality. And so I had a little bit of that with the Trip Fontaine character. Yeah, he was a dipshit, typical guy who, you know, probably well, actually, ended up doing that. Actually, in a way, he was a, sort of intelligent, the way he plays Mr. Lisbon. So well, he's almost a double threat. He's a triple threat. <laughs> he also plays uh, football. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, he has he murders two gay on parents. the football field. He uh, owns adults and he. And he plows pussy all night long, man. That's he drives a, a GTO, and he has two, but he has two gay parents. So, that's kind oh of man, what do you think? What did you think about his his gay father and his lover? What a yeah. weird scene! That was a weird scene. I was trying to make a little sense of why that was in the film, and other than that, it was the seventies, and uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, I guess breaking the mold and uh, I think people were sort of on beginning to come out as as gay folks back then uh, I yeah it was weird I, I can't I, I was trying to figure that out why it was like a juxtaposition you had two gay men who were like pumping up the ego of a pussy hound you know to go out there and seduce and destroy and I, I don't know it was it was, it was I, I couldn't I don't know you have any thoughts my, my only guess is that well, I'm trying to figure out if this movie is always told in the, I mean, the book's always narrated in the first person's perspective by these sort of lower tier, mid tier boys. How, how did, how did that scene get narrated in the, in the book? Or was that scene even in the book? I wonder, I mean, I don't know. It seems a weird choice for Sofia Coppola. I understand the, you know, setting up the contrast, which sort of brightens the already bright trip fontaine even more it does seem sort of a weird choice so i love the i love the image of those two gay guys cracks (laughs) cracks the fucking shit out of me um i guess i'm not sure exactly what the point is but you know this movie is not necessarily trying to make a point it's more this movie is more of a texture film it's more about flavors the movie even cops to that at the end that there were no answers to the suicides which sort of leads me to the next topic I wanted to talk about, which is uh, if if there really is no answer, then is this movie a metaphor? Is it an exaggeration? Uh, is it are these girls really not real people, but more or less projections of society and how we view teenage girls? Uh, I know when I was a teenager and I would have a crush on some girl in school. Uh, it was, I don't, man, there was some kind of hormone running through me that I, I'd almost kind of like to go inject into myself again. Cause it is long gone where you just have, and I think it has due to the fact that you're young and you fantasize about the future that of course will never be. Um, but like those boys, when they were getting the same, uh, 
tourist guides that the girls across the street were getting. And then you get that nice montage of them with the girls globe trotting and all these exotic locations. And like I did that kind of crap. I mean, I was like totally, you know, I could totally relate to that. And, you know, I would get a crush on a girl and she would be in like one of my classes, you know, and I would just sit there and fantasize. And then like the weekend would come and then I would just be this kind of mumbling mess of hormones of, you know, completely impotent. And then I would come back on Monday and I would see her and it would just be this weird, like freaky, uh, you know, I don't know. uh, Like I was like a deer in headlights kind of thing. And uh, God forbid she ever talked to me. If she talked to me, I'd just fucking lose it. You know, I'd be a mess. So I got a lot of that from from this film that, you know, we don't view or at least society doesn't hold up sort of this standard of beauty, this kind of ephemeral moment of young girls as them actually being people. Uh, We project all our desires and wants uh, onto them. And uh, they're not, you know... I think that's – it seems to me if, if if there's anything about this movie, that's kind of a part of it. So, Shit, man. You really covered a lot of territory there. I know. Um, so mop up. So, oh, shit. Okay. So back to the first point. Uh, the importance of adolescence and the weight that mundane things or small matters seem to have. The terrible, terrible weight that uh, the little things in life hold your attention and you lose that as you get older. I mean, a lot of a lot of these feelings that the boys are having are, are pretty clearly stated in the in the voiceovers, which is one thing. I, there's another time where I like voiceovers in films. People are always dogging voiceover. I I think it's a great technique. It works well here, especially it. for it, literary. It works stories. well every time we've seen it over this entire po- history of this podcast. So I, I sort of. Whenever somebody dismisses voiceovers as the as a weak filmmaking technique, I I, I really can't agree with them. Well, okay. well, hold on, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you continue here, but like, yeah, I think you're right because uh, some of my favorite movies, like that we've reviewed here, like Fight Club, uh, American Psycho, this film, uh, they all have a literary origin. They're all based off off of fairly popular novels, and they try to remain true to that novel, sort of that literary heritage and it's the it simplest works. way to approach the the literature to just take the words and throw them at the viewer with images yeah i, mean, I think, I think I it think works it's great a, it's simple but it fucking works yep continue and, uh, just because it's simple anyways um so your first point about the weight of matters affecting uh um young people more and, and they go the voiceover guy near the end of the movie talks about that to some degree. He says, we begin the impossible process of trying to forget them, forget the girls. And then he goes on to say, and this is just sort of paraphrase, that um, our parents seem better able to do this. The, the narrator comments to himself. And, uh, and he goes on that they had, there's a party, and he said, we all went to forget the Lisbon girls. And I think that's a really important um, observation by the narrator, by these boys looking in the past that as you get older, matters of life and death, they get muted. And, you know, I go, when you look at it's terrible stuff in the world, like you just look at what's been happening over an instant, it's in Constantinople. Well, what's going on over there? The last Shit. week. Well, the government, the police has been cracking down on oh. protests from, oh, okay. uh, 
from the people. So they're out there, you know, tear gassing people that wanted to save a park, and like blowing right. people's eyeballs out with high pressure Jesus. hoses. Christ and Almighty. it's like, you know, I've seen that over and over again. I've seen it from our own government. I just don't care any longer. Of course, governments oppress their people. It's just the way of the world. But if you're 16 or maybe you're 20 in college, it can seem terribly weighty and important. Mm-hmm. You can lose many hours talking about it with your friends about the injustices of the world. And for me, the world's nothing but a series of injustices. So I'm yeah. just going to try to finish uh, redoing my front lawn. Yeah, I'm kind of going to worry about it. I used to, I had, I call it my Nam Chomsky phase where I was all hopped up on that, that whole, you know, I was, I was way more ideological, but now I just call myself like a political nihilist. You know, I, I, I don't believe in ideology. I don't believe in, uh, really a right path for government and I've given up trying, you know, like you said, it's, it's just not important. Well, I don't I got shit to do. I don't, I, I don't think it's anything to be proud of. No, it's if not. You want my opinion. But I think it's a natural way that people exist. I think that's an important comment that the parents didn't have as big of a problem. Yeah, some girls killed themselves. The world goes on. I mean, I got a tea time. And unfortunately, that's just the goddamn sad truth of our existence. And I think that's an important. So you made a second point. And now I'm I'm forgetting it now. Uh, The first point was the weight. The second point was... What are girls? And you you were going on about what the hell were you t- talking <laughs> rambling about? Rambling, no, no, no. I, I just I don't I just don't feel like I agreed with you, but I'm having trouble right, remembering what, exactly fine. what you said. Do you remember? Uh, I was just talking about having crushes, the being dreamy. Oh, you're talking being about dreamy your crushes and, and fantasizing, and yeah, uh, the, not the really fantasy world, and really not viewing uh, adolescent teenage girls as real people, as, uh, as people. Yeah. So you know this movie. I think on the surface, a surface viewing, maybe you can see this movie as sort of reveling in that dreaminess of the of the teenage girl. But I think in its core, it's actually a movie that looks very frankly at what it is to be a teenager, whether you're a woman or not. I mean, early on in the movie, after Cecilia finally kills herself on that fence, the narrator goes on to say something about girls. And I'm just going to read it. It's a, it's a little poem-like about eight lines he says we felt the imprisonment of being a girl the way it made your mind active and dreamy and how you ended up knowing what colors went together we knew the girls were really women in disguise that they understood love and even death and that our job was merely to create the noise that seemed to fascinate them we knew they know everything about us and that we couldn't fathom then at all, them at all. And, and the, them, it's not even internally consistent. No, it, it sort isn't. Of has the uh, the confusion of um, of the boys, but they they didn't understand themselves. But they realized that these were internal people that maybe had a different perspective on life than us. So the boys had a hint that these were real people and not just these fantasy figures, even though. Everything in their maybe their hormones was was trying to make them just treat them as sort of these fanciful beings, but in a, on a certain level they understood that they were individuals. And there's two scenes in the movie where you actually see that. Uh, the first is uh, when we talked briefly about the party, the first party in the basement, of the night uh, that Cecilia kills herself. 
uh, you see the the young people there, and, and they're they're really uncomfortable around each yeah. other. They don't really yeah. have any common ground, and, and there's sort of that standard like junior high, high school dance sort of uh, uncomfortableness. But then Joe comes in, the uh, the Down syndrome kid, right. and all of a sudden they uh, the the boys and the girls have something in common, and, and they 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 start having a very natural rapport with each other. Yeah. Well, they have something to uh, break the ice. And yeah, the, and they're not talking about each other on fanciful terms. They're just talking about stuff very, very casually. And um, that doesn't sit well with Cecilia, but I don't really want to talk about that just in the moment. The second scene is actually what I started the podcast with, is when um, the Trip Fontaine and his three football buddies, uh, one being that uh, guy who played. No, there was uh, no Trip Fontaine. Was there a Trip Fontaine? Oh, yeah, Trip Fontaine was in the car. Trip Fontaine yeah, and okay. uh, the guy who played Anakin Skywalker. Oh, yeah, Hayden Christensen. Hayden Christensen. Yeah. Anyways, they're taking the girls to the prom or something along those lines. And, I mean, you, you listening to this podcast here at the beginning, and they're just talking about the neighborhood. They're just yeah. gossiping. And it's just so, it's just so simple and just well, so matter of fact. It, it really, I think it really breaks through the fantasy that these are just kids. Sure. And that while they're forced into these weird relationships by uh, uh, their nascent sexuality and you know thoughts of social expectations, they're just young people just you know watching the world and trying to understand it. And it's just it's so mundane that I just I really love those moments where it's just very real. You break through the fog and you just those two moments you just see these kids just as kids. Without all the other crap on top of it. And I, I really like those two points of clarity in this movie. So, in a way, this movie, I think, is trying to break through that sort of... Uh, I mean, it, it recognizes it largely that the sort of these idealized states exist between young people. But it shows you that you can... It, it, there's moments where it breaks through where there's just the real and how calm well, the real you know, is. And, I really enjoy that. And, and I think a lot of that I would call proximity. Uh, if I was a young man in my teenage years, and I mean, I, I didn't have any siblings. Uh, I definitely, you know, to have like a sibling of the opposite sex who would have had uh, friends over that would just kind of get me in proximity to teenage girls to like maybe eavesdrop on some of that banner that we heard in the beginning. Uh, I think would have definitely gave me much more of a realistic window and probably would have made me relate better to teenage girls when I was a teenager uh, than my reality at the time. And that was my problem. I just, you know, you, you, you don't, there's no facts on the ground to build up any kind of reality about teenage girls. And uh, maybe that was more the case with the kids, across, the boys across the street in the film. Um, that they just, you know, there wasn't an exposure there other than that, like, awkward party and, and some other things that uh, just allows you to relate to another human being, you know. So, I don't know. Yeah, in a way, I, I think the movie's lamenting puberty and this weird relationship that men and women are forced to have by our bi- biology. Yeah. Because it's, it's lamenting it so much that these girls couldn't deal with it and the only way they found to cope with it was to simply leave life so uh that segues to i'm I'm gonna kind of go on a little tangent here about the suicides themselves 
And there was uh, something I heard. I think it was a uh, Radio Lab podcast about, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's like La Inconnue de la Seine, or in French, The Unknown Woman of the Seine. And I don't know if you've heard this. Uh, no, I haven't. But it was an unidentified young woman whose death mask became a popular fish, fixture on the walls of artists' homes after 1900. Her visage was the inspiration for numerous literary works in the United States. The mask is also known as La Belle Italienne. And then there's also, I think it's been debunked by Snopes, that it was actually that face was used for the CPR doll that if you've ever taken a CPR class, uh, you've used. Um, but the history is interesting. And abused. You said abused. You sick fuck. Anyway, all right. So uh, a little history in, in, in the context of the movie uh, Virgin Suicides. I just want to read it to you and maybe get some of your thoughts on it. Uh, it's, a, it's just in Wikipedia here, but I want to read it. Uh, according to an oft-repeated story, the body of the young woman was pulled out of the Seine River at La Quai de Louvre in Paris around the late 1800s. The body showed no signs of violence and suicide was suspected. A pathologist at Paris Morgue was so taken by her beauty that he had a molder make a plaster cast death mask on her face. Not uncommon at the time. Right. According to other accounts, the mask was taken from the daughter of a mask manufacturer in Germany, which is probably more the case because, uh, listening to the Radiolab podcast, they said anybody uh, exposed after death in a watery body will kind of really go to hell quickly, and it would been impossible but that's not the point the point is the imagination that it inspired uh the identity of the girl was never discovered claire forrester estimated the age of the model at no more than 16 given the firmness of the skin in the following years numerous copies were produced the copies quickly became a fashionable morbid fixture in parisian bohemian society albert camus and other others compared her enigmatic smile to that of the mona lisa inviting numerous speculations as to what clues the eerily happy expression in her face could offer about her life her death and her place in society the popularity of the figure is also of interest in the history of artistic media relating to its widespread reproduction the original cast has been photographed and new casts were created back from the film negatives these new casts display details that are usually lost in bodies taken from the water, but the apparent preservation of these details in the visage of the cast seem to only reinforce this authenticity. Uh, critic Al Alvarez wrote in his book on suicide, The Savage God, I am told that a whole generation of German girls modeled their looks on her. According to Hans Hess of the University of Sussex, Alvarez reports that Inconnu became the erotic ideal of the period, as Bardot was for the 1950s. He thinks that the German actress like Elizabeth Bergner modeled themselves on her. She was finally displaced as a paradigm by Greta Garbo. So, I don't know. I thought that was kind of... Your thoughts? Well, I mean, in a sense, that's the wrong-headedness that uh, this movie sort of laments of making a fantasy of a person. Yeah, that's what I thought. At least that's this seemed to be the real life, I guess, uh, you know, story that the Virgin Suicides is trying to tell. In my opinion, so it's it's sort of it's sort of a terrible reality this movie's telling us. It says when you get old, you don't care, and when you're young, you can't avoid the fantasy to see the realness behind it. The only time you could actually care about 
another person as much as possible is when you're young. Yet when you're young, there's all this distraction, this noise that you can't break through, this fantasy world. And so it's almost, this movie has a certain sense of hopelessness to it. Well, and, uh, why, why was the, the suicide mechanism installed into the plot of this film? What, you know, that's what I was trying to get well, at. Well, it's know, supposed it, to be a tragedy. Well, it, it is and it isn't. But, you know, I was, I was thinking about the story that I just talked about with this, you know, I guess uh, anonymous woman that died. You know, and it doesn't really matter the facts, but it's kind of what society built on top of the romance of such a notion. Uh, what I think they were doing was like the suicide was never the origins of the su- suicide were never um, discovered, and so people projected uh, a life onto her that may have been extremely far from whatever romantic notions they may have had about it. And, so you're uh, saying this this book is a projection? Well, that's kind of what I'm getting, and and yeah. uh, I I think with suicide with an end, you know, it, uh, don't it do doesn't. It. A, well, it doesn't. A, yeah, suicide, suicide. Don't do it anyway. Uh, but with the girls dying by their own hand, it inserts kind of a romance into uh, you know a melancholy, but a, a romantic melancholy into the storyline because what it does is it crystallizes those adolescent girls in time and doesn't allow them to become real human beings in sort of like your dad's friend's spine, right? (laughs) No, that wasn't his friend. It was Richard Burton, the famous Shakespearean. Oh, it was Richard Burton. No, I thought your your dad was friends with him. (laughs) Oh, he probably was in a few stories back. He probably ran into him when he was working on the ferry in Port Angeles, you know, (laughs) anyway. So, I mean, I guess there is something about, romanticizing depression and it's nothing very romantic if you've dealt with it but i guess you try to cast anything you can in the best light you can and so maybe you can say oh my depression is a great creative spark to you know make me well there was a a whole wave of french uh, a whole wave in french painting and i don't know what era whether it was impressionist or earlier uh and it was called the ennui which is a uh, kind of a gender-specific depression. And it was always these pictures of these depressed women, these depressed-kept women. You know, they were always very, uh, uh, what's the right word, affluent, staring out through a window in some sort of depressive state. And uh, there's a ton of paintings of women in the ennui, you know, uh, so much so that it's like a French word that we've since incorporated into the English lexicon. So there is maybe, like you said, a little something romantic, as weird as that seems, about, you know, I, I don't, a depressed teenager. I mean, that's the one thing about this movie, I think, is that it sort of rides these multiple points, that it doesn't really answer your question about how you should feel about these these suicides. You can feel about how how you want about it. You can miss, you know, make a myth about it and romanticize these women, or you can say it was ultimately pointless. Um, I mean, the narrator doesn't really give you a clear answer. I mean, near the end of the movie, he says, um, what lingered after them was not life, but the most trivial list of mundane facts, a clock 
ticking on the wall, a room dim at noon, the outrageousness of a human being thinking only of herself. There's sort of a damnation in that line that I, I thought was important. That could apply hmm. to multiple characters throughout this film. And I think it's it goes to say the, the sort of the am, ambiguity of the narrator, because I don't think he really knows the answers either. I mean, is he damning the girls? Because people have said suicide is largely a selfish act, and it's true. Sometimes it's the only reasonable act for a person that uh, has no will to live. And I, I hate to damn somebody for killing themselves, but in a sense it's it's selfish because of the damage it does to other people. Uh, or is it the is it the mother's fault, which you could certainly put plenty of blame on her shoulders? I don't, I don't think that line clearly points at a particular person that leaves it ambiguous, which I, I like about this film as well. I don't know if you have any comments on that line. Uh, and I, he, I, he includes that he concludes that in the list of mundane facts. It is mundane that outrageousness of a human being thinking only of themselves, basically. And you're right, people. That's what people think. People largely just think about themselves, which is how I well, think. It's it's terribly mundane because it's just so commonplace. Yeah. Well, if if you know, we're taking as suicide is a selfish act, which I kind of believe it is. And, uh, I mean, you're not, you're, you're, you're shaking your head, but I, I think it's, I think it may be a selfish act, but I think it's a perfectly reasonable act in many situations. Well, you used to I'll not be... have such a stigma and I think well, it's sort of unfortunate. I think it's your choice whether or not you want to continue to live or not. Well, I mean, I mean in Japan, you're, you're a that... man who believes in free will. Well, okay. In Japan, suicide doesn't isn't stigmatized like it is here uh they kind of have the uh, shoulder shrug yeah well not you know if if you've shamed your family in any way then you know you should probably go off into the woods and hang yourself that's probably a good idea well i don't know uh, if it's necessarily a shame thing i don't know i i would view japan as extremely mentally unhealthy but they have the view of suicide that you just said is uh um appropriate and i i don't agree okay that's fine uh, so, but the, okay, back to the movie, the, you know, a suicide, how many girls, five girls in one family, it, that doesn't, it doesn't ever seem like that would be a realistic I, I, I don't buy the realism of that. I buy the romantic sort of metaphor of it, which is, I think what the movie's serving up, but like, there's no instance in here yeah, the that serving, the movie's serving up more than romance. Well, Okay. Uh, but like practical practicality would dictate that the only way you'd get five people to commit suicide at the same time is if you're like running a Jim Jones style death cult. I, I don't know if if you're talking about this movie in, you know, I don't know. I, I would never. This isn't a realistic film in that regard. No. What do you think? Um, I, I'm just not sure if I think that's an important point or not it's a, it's a good question i don't have an answer to it well i think what it does is it decouples the film from reality and puts it more in the sort of the the the, the metaphor realm or it, it is you know the girls as a symbol not necessarily i don't know no yeah it's i'm just not sure how i feel about that okay. I, I i can't really comment on it because i i just i don't know i sort of take the characters in this film as experiencing this for real 
and these people are real trying to come to terms with it, these boys. So I don't, I, when I think about them and I make models of what these boys are thinking and what these girls are thinking, I consider the suicides as simply fact when I'm trying to understand them and trying right. to understand what the movie wants to say through them. Okay. I, I typically like, I think of, you know, teenage suicide almost as a, uh, I don't know, it usually results from like bullying and, and, and crap like that. Uh, I, I don't know if you can really, really march it up to me- mechanistic aspect like that. I think just some people, they aren't necessary. They just don't really have, they just don't have the right psyche to live in this world. And I think they come to realize that to a certain extent and maybe falsely that there's just no reason for them to live any longer. Well, when you're a teenager, that's, that's not the case. Uh, you're, it's a transitory period in your life. Um, it's not a permanence. And uh, you, you there's know, plenty of time to plenty of time to kill yourself once you get to middle age. Well, you know, and you, you go bankrupt, and your wife leaves you. Yeah, then then that's probably the time. But uh, yeah, not when you know the you still got a a hand to play. And uh, I don't know. I it, I don't know what we're t- I don't know what we're trying to get at here with our. I don't, our I don't think we, I don't think we understand either. I think this movie's a little confusing. I, I like that. Well, I think that's what the point is, and there's not really any answers to it. So it, it's it's an evocative film. Yeah, uh, certainly. It's it's obviously in our discussion. It's churning, I guess, lots of emotions, but maybe not a lot of uh, a lot of answers. Specific points or answers or so. Responses. I think in a sense, this movie is a good piece of art because it is so evocative, and uh, I think generally it was pretty well received by critics. Yeah. So do you want to head up to Ebert? Ebert reviewed this uh, when it came out back in uh, 2000. Gave it three and a half stars, which was a very good review from Ebert. And uh, nice to see after a couple of weeks of uh, Ebert phoning it in, <laughs> he um, really takes his time crafting this review. And, and he crafts it so well, in fact, that there's a couple parts that I don't understand that I'm going to ask you about. Uh, anyways, let's, let's uh, focus on what I uh, could understand. He says... It is not important how the Lisbon sisters looked. What is important is how the teenage boys of the neighborhood thought they looked. Um, uh, I don't know about that. What? Okay. I'm of that opinion. Well, that just seems how they thought they looked. I mean, this I is, guess this, it, this, this movie the boys isn't, and, this movie isn't about uh, humanizing these girls. It's probably the opposite. It gives you, uh, but I disagree with that wholeheartedly. All right. I mean, well, those two I mean, moments I called out where it humanizes them. I think. No, no, I understand that. Film. That that there's an objective point of view in the film that makes that extremely clear. But yeah, and I think the movie's criticizing the uh, the idealization that goes on. Well, of in course, these adolescents' minds. Well, and that's and that's where Ebert's coming from in that statement. Oh, okay, well, I see where you, I see. I see what you're saying. There, it is important. Not that it's right, or Correct. it's the point of the film. It's Correct. simply an important aspect of the film. 
All right, fair enough. Most of the reviews have focused on the girls. I think this is an important point. They miss the other subject, the gawky, insecure yearning of the boys. This movie is as much about them as it is about the Lisbon girls. And I thought, I thought that was an important part. I think we touched on that a little bit, talking about the boys. How, how could we help it being boys ourselves? Um, he says, Trip Fontaine is blindsided by sex and beauty. <laughs> well, like that. Yeah. yeah. If we could all be so lucky as to be blindsided by those two things, huh? Um, he goes on to talk about Trip briefly, uh, looking back as the adult narrator uh, Trip. He remembers not only talking about Lux and his his uh, wooing and eventual uh, sex with Lux. He says um, that she was a still point of the turning world uh, and that most people have never tasted that kind of love. Um, he says, I liked her a lot, but out there on the football field, it was different. That's where he betted her. Mm-hmm. And Eber says, yes, it was. It was the end of adolescence and the beginning of a lifetime of compromises, disenchantments, and real things. Well, and then he goes and then he goes on to um use that to turn in this way. He says When the Lisbon girls kill themselves, do not blame their deaths on their weird parents. Mourn for the passing of everyone you knew and everything you were the last summer before sex. He's, he's saying maybe we should have... I, I didn't really see this, but you were saying that the suicide of the Lisbon's girls is a... is a It's not a spout of suicide. It's more about the passing of adolescence or it's purity. Like an, it's like an end of a dream, in a way. Yeah. You know? He says, even if the person doesn't die, they're not what they were the year before. And it's never more poignant than this adult time of adolescence where this changes never more. They might as well have died because they're not the same the next year. Well, uh, th- then there's a point about trip that you and I had, a, an, a, a, that kind of sums up our conversation. The beginning trip left Lux, not because he was a pig, although you have that opinion, but because he was a boy with, he was a boy and broken with grief at the loss of their dream. Uh, so, I mean, that's true too. I mean, look, I'm sure Ebert fucked a lot of girls on the football field when he was the QB back in high school. Well, yeah, sure. And that's fair not? enough. Wouldn't you, if you were Ebert? And, no. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Ebert Springs a big dick. But, yeah, I think that's an important point that we didn't explicitly make, and I guess I didn't quite see. But I think thinking about it, that's an important aspect of the film and probably a more important aspect of the of the book. Um, And he goes and talks about uh, drawing a a similarity between something called The Picnic at Hanging Rock, a 75 film, which I vaguely heard about as being really good. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't. But he says in there, there's about a bunch of girls who disappear in their adolescence. He says, their disappearance is the point. And um, I think that's the point of this film. That's the point of the movie is that they disappeared. No matter how they disappear, whether it's suicide or simply becoming an adult. They still evaporate. Their current states. So uh, gone. almost is the the result is the same. Yeah, the result is the same. Yeah. Hmm, um, and you could, in a way, you could find yourself a boy later going, "Whatever happened to those girls?" Right. Think about the yeah. women that maybe you had crushes on that you didn't really know in high school, and what would happen if uh, you saw them now? There's actually a pretty interesting Louis C.K. show 
where uh, he oh, yeah, meets a girl from high school. That, he Facebooks uh, her. Yeah, he Facebooks her. Like they were, he was. They were. She was like a little. A, she was a little more dominant, and he sort of yeah. bowed out of having a sexual experience. And he goes to see her later, and she has a couple of kids, and she's overweight. <laughs> but they fuck each other anyways. You see, that's like the only episode I've ever seen. Yeah, that's like one of his first up. episodes. It's pretty good. But uh, you wonder if you saw some of those women today. Well, I've, they might as know, well through, have died through Facebook. Uh, the magic of Facebook, uh, you can, and I have, and uh, yeah, I've seen you know pictures of old high school crushes, you know, with kids doing middle aged shit. And, uh, it's definitely, um, I don't after, yeah, it's, it's, it's not that person. Uh, it doesn't really matter anymore that, uh, you know, it's a different person. It's just, you know, like we all are, it's like boring pictures of people that I don't care about again. So, well, because you're older and you don't care about stuff any longer. I don't give a shit about, I don't give a shit about shit. Yeah. So, um, he goes on to talk about Sofia Coppola. He says uh, she has the courage to play this movie in a minor key. And that's true. Yeah. He doesn't. She doesn't hammer home ideas and interpretations. She is content with an air of mystery and loss that hangs in the air like bitter poignancy. I think that's nicely. It's a nicely crafted little sentence. There. It leaves a lot on the table, obviously, and it leaves like most of the point of the film on the table if there truly is a point. But I think we both agree it's an evocative film that doesn't yeah. necessarily have to broadcast that. To it, it gives. It has the, some the, answers in there, or at least some possible interpretations that I think are important to at least recognize that they exist as valid interpretations of life. It gives the viewer the benefit of the doubt and doesn't lay every. It doesn't lay it on the table for you to go, oh, okay, now I, you know, I mean, it's, it's every very subtle. It's the exact opposite of everything I hate about Spielberg. Oh, yeah, Spielberg. Okay. <laughs> um, also, this review uses the word Harridan, which we learned. Yeah, no, I saw that. It means a bossy woman, which I like. It's always fun when you see a new word, then you see it again. Harridan. It cracks me up. You um, Harridan. Here's, a, here's a, uh, a paragraph I do not understand. Let's see if you understand it. It's near the end. He says, the worship, of the, the, worship the girls receive from the neighborhood boys confuses them. If they are perfect... Why are they seen as such flawed and dangerous creatures? And then the reality of sex, too young, peels back the innocent idealism and reveals its secret engine, which is animal and brutal, lustful and contemptuous. Well, that paragraph wow. does not. Make that's low. That's there's a lot of there's a lot of verbiage crammed in that. I am not seeing what he's talking about there. Did you? Did you? I read that. I read that like three times, and it's like uh, all nice words there, but I do not understand what he's talking about. Uh, well, okay, so the, we can pass well, it over the first, if you want. The first sentence doesn't. I Make them is the confusing object here. The worship. Well, of the them girls must was, be the girls. Okay, confuses the girls. Um, if they are perfect, why are they seen as such flawed and dangerous creatures to themselves? Is that? Yeah, I don't see. I don't see how they have that realization. I'm going to chalk this up that there may be a really excellent point in here, but uh, yeah, you smoked in blunt. Ebert didn't write it in such a way that makes it very obvious. So let's move on. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's see here. Here, one other thing that I did understand 
he says, in a way, the Lisbon girls and the neighborhood boys never existed, except in their own adolescent imagination, which is true, I guess. Yeah. You know, I was thinking of uh, the Charlie Kaufman film we watched a little, quite a while ago, Adaptation, where he has that little scene with his brother, and they talk about uh, when he was talking to one of his crushes in high school and once he left they made fun of him and he said uh he didn't care about that because he was in love with her regardless and it was that being in love that he was do you remember that i'm not doing it justice but there was a scene where he talks about uh it wasn't the being the, the girl wasn't the point of his crush it was like the romantic sort of teenage notion of being in love that he was, I guess, he felt was precious. And uh, he didn't care. Yeah, I, mean, what... I don't remember that scene, but I can see the character point of view there. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I don't know. As the film says, there's really no answers and we're kind of muddled our way through. And just, uh, and just like life, there's no real answers. There's only but there's... possible interpretations. There's some that parts of this have some validity or at least to some degree. Yeah, sorry to talk over yet. There's some things about the film that I wanted to kind of discuss, like the weird environmental uh stuff that was going on in the film. Yeah, the, the Dutch get. elm disease issue, which was 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 pretty important. I mean, they're set in Michigan, right? Yeah. And I think it's sort of I think it's a little bit of a comment about the overripeness of American culture, like in all cycles. As Chauncey Gardner would say, there's a time to plant and a time to reap. Well, Rose and remembers here, the whole Dutch elm blight, uh, if you will, because she grew up in Wisconsin and it was a whole well, Midwest. Well, keep thing. remembering it's still a problem. Oh, really? Tr- yeah, elm trees still die like crazy. There's there's some new cultivars, but they're only at the most 30 years old that are only to some degree resistant to the various types of fungi that kill elm trees. Yeah, I didn't realize it was a thing. So that was... Yeah, it's a thing. Elm trees just, uh, they've had a bad run with uh, uh, diseases. Huh. Anyway. And I think it's a little bit of a, it's supposed to, I think it's supposed to mirror sort of maybe a, a rotten, there's something rotten about the American life style. There's something rotten about Detroit yeah. in, in that area. <laughs> the fuck's left of Detroit. Well, You the, know, and we've seen it rot out completely since then but here's here's where it's starting to spoil and i think in a sense maybe these girls are the soft spot on the fruit well the uh you know the end scene is just uh the production design went a little nuts like the the, the atmosphere is literally green like there's green yeah they smoke. put a filter on it yeah and they're drinking like green punch or something well, that was just that was the shtick for that party some rich hoity-toity oh, guy was thrown for his okay. daughter. Yeah. Because there was a uh, there was a phosphate leak that caused the algae bloom, which made, made the, the lake stink. The lake stink, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah which has gone really foul. Well, and, and yeah, and Detroit is, uh, is just, you know, it's a shell of a place. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, just look at it then. Look at it now. I mean, just as it was. I mean, it, it's at an inflection point. It's turning. It's starting that apple's gotten a little too soft. So and do you think, think that's, that's what... An important, it's supposed well, to mirror, I think, the situation a little bit. Yeah, okay, right. Well, you know, that uh, Amer- the American uh, 
I guess the I the ideal period of American history, which I always think of the fifties and sixties, because that's like the Eisenhower era, post war era, or just shit was booming. Man, it was great for the white man back then. I that oh, yeah. must have been the the halcyon days. Yeah, your and, buying uh, power was incredible. Yeah, nobody gave a shit about the environment because there wasn't enough impact at the time that we could actually see it, you know, and and all that good stuff. So maybe, yeah, it was sort of an end to innocence in the seventies where uh, you couldn't really dismiss it any longer. You couldn't dismiss the sickness of that humanity was causing on the landscape and uh shit got and, real and in ourselves to a certain extent but this is where the the writer of the book grew up and he has uh this era of uh, the midwest is plays a central role to, in all his books including oh, okay. his most well-received one middle sex which won a pulitzer some time ago yeah it was okay. a bit of a media darling back when it came out in the mid-2000s yeah there's something about these writers that only can like crank out three books and are just cherished halcyons of uh, modern literature. Uh, I've written three novels, and <laughs> I really wish I could just fucking kick back and sell royalties on the bitches. And I can, like, mean, be like a, be like a, a Herm, J.D. Salinger hermit and chase reporters off my lawn for the rest of my life. God damn. Look, man, the money's going to be rolling in soon. We, You can take <laughs> me down. I saw a... Um, there was a... On uh, one of the gossip websites I visit, there was a... Um, uh, somebody had scanned the bill from a night out at a bar by some, uh, you know, one of the top tier NBA players, and the total oh, bill yeah, was I like a hundred, one hundred seventy thousand dollars. Yeah, I've seen those fucking bills, <laughs> and like they're just like no tip. Like the, yeah, like these they're getting these Magnum bottles of Cristal. They're like ten thousand dollars a piece. You know, thirteen. Yeah, right. Of those fuckers. I'm like, holy uh, fucking shit. I wouldn't even think there's that much capital in a bar that you could that you could pull. Oh, like, just imagine oh. the profit margin on that, son of a bitch. Oh, my God. Well, I, I'm a big scotch drinker. And, and the funny thing is they're still charging them for their Red Balls and Diet Cokes. <laughs> really, why don't you just write that one off? Don't, don't charge them $50 for a dozen Red Bulls. Uh, I, I'm a scotch drinker, and I'll, I'll go to the bar. And uh, I rarely buy scotch at the bar unless it's something really unique and I don't have it or I don't have access to it. And I'll get a pour and it's like fucking $15 for something that's like 12 or 15 years old. And I'll be sitting there and I'm like, holy shit, the markup on this is unbelievable. Like I go home and I must have like 35 single malts in my collection. And The, the worst thing about that pour you got for $15, they cut it. 50% with Scoresby. Yeah, right. Fucking drain putting Scoresby in the bottles every night. Exactly. So, yeah, no, that's 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 pretty entertaining. So, what were you saying about rich NBA players and $100,000 bill, bills that they can just uh, uh I don't even know why I was making that point. I don't know, we were talking about we were talking about loaded authors, which there's very few of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you were going to take you're going to take me out and we're going to have one of those nights when once the Oh, start oh with my money. Yeah, no. Book uh, sales. I did I am I, I haven't got it yet, but I am getting in advance, and uh, I'll—I think I've already mentioned it, but I'll probably blow it on uh, dinner one night. Okay. So, yeah. Anyway, but I did. Well, there's uh, worse ways you can blow it. I did get my. Uh, the publisher did send me a cover art form, and oh uh, yeah, I saw that on Facebook. So you can ask for what you want. Yeah, 
And uh, I have to put like a blurb on the back. It's incredibly difficult. I thought it was going to be the fun part of getting published, but it's actually really a challenge because it's your only marketing tool. And well, hold it. Do you know any? Do you have any? Oh, oh, oh! I got it. Write to um, Henry Rollins and ask him for a blurb. <laughs> Send him a chapter. Say, could you read this chapter and write a blurb about this? Yeah, I'd really I'm appreciate sure it. He jumped to it uh, anyway, but. Uh, I put that up there, and a friend, uh, there's a uh, blog called Good Show, Sir. I know we're getting off the topic of the movie, but it's the end of the podcast. So we're anyway, done. We're done uh, with the movie. We're done with the movie. But uh, anyway, it's all these really terrible sci-fi covers that uh, the blog the blogger has collected over the years. And he has sort of tags to him. And there's a tag specifically for cat people. And if you hit cat people, it will show you all these shitty sci-fi novel covers with cat people in it. It's a trope. It's a meme. It's like everywhere. Michael, you wouldn't believe well, it. Well, there's, 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 a, there's a few sci-fi series that involve cat people. I know Michael Whalen, who's done a lot of fantasy sci-fi covers, if you're familiar with him. Yeah, He's done yeah. quite a few cat people covers with laser pistols and shit. Well, uh, and then there's uh, an Alan Dean Foster series I really liked called uh, uh, Ice Rigger that has cat people in it, too. But... Uh, Wing Commander, the novelizations. Yeah, and I was like, what the fuck is with cat people and sci-fi? And then, of course, I drifted right towards James Cameron and basically indicted him in my head as more of a hack than I originally thought he was. So uh, He is the best, technically best hack filmmaker that's ever existed. (laughs) Fucking hack. He's an amazing, he's amazing technical powerhouse of a hack. Yeah, and so then I look at avatars. Like, could he roll out any more fucking used and abused sci-fi tropes? You know, uh, no, is my opinion. So, um, all right. So our movie. For well, next speaking week. of hack movie directors, <laughs> next week I'm going to visit one of the early works uh, that I've never seen. Of one of my, if you got to talk about successful directors that I'm not too crazy about, uh, it'd be uh, Steven Spielberg. Sure. But uh, as with many artists, it's their early work that's their best. And I have never seen Jaws. Are you shitting me? Never seen Jaws. And this is my great movies pick. Well, you know, I was. Movie cycle. When you mentioned that that was going to be our film, I was almost of the opinion that, well, I don't even have to fucking watch Jaws because I almost remember that whole movie line for line. But uh, I will to freshen up. I I can't believe you haven't seen it. What's how did I've that even happen? Are you are you scared? Man, you scared? Were you in one of those wussy sleep. kids? I like to sleep. Were you in one of those wussy kids in swimming lessons that couldn't like was too scared to put his head underwater and I made fun of? No, man, I'm a good swimmer. All right, yeah, I'm a, I, I, I'll rock you out, man. Especially now <laughs> that I'm really buoyant. <laughs> right. Let's do laughs. We'll do some laughs. So. Um, yeah, wow. so Jaws, I think I'll enjoy it. It's supposed to be a pretty good film. Jaws is good. Uh, yeah, and I'll I, since I I'm a certified diver, I will uh, I, I'm sure insert many pointless anecdotes into the review. Um, but I have a word for you: bathophobic. Yeah. Do you know what bathophobic means? It's a word. It's a fear. Um. Well, other than the obvious, I don't know what is it. A fear of the deep. So, oh, bathos. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. I've I've uh, had moments of bathophobia uh, anyway. So. Oh, because you've been down. Yeah, I don't uh, – you know me, I I generally don't think getting out in nature is that good of an idea. 
Well, getting under 100 feet of water uh, probably isn't that good of an idea, but if you've ever done it, It's about it, as it smart is. as getting up into the uh, death zone of mountain climbing. Yeah, it's a weird experience, and uh, I'll try to... Anywhere uh, you have to bring your own oxygen is a place <laughs> I am not going to go. I'll try to. Uh, I'll try not to bore our listeners with uh, my... Oh, my I like... I like I, I find it really romantic. I, I just don't think I have the constitution for uh, diving. I might. Uh, if I had if I like had a lot of disposable income, I might do it because I'd worry I'd spend eight grand on equipment and then only do it a couple of times. Yeah, that is the fear. That's the biggest fear. I have seen a shark while diving, so I'll just leave it at that. We'll uh, save it until next week. Peach snops. Babes love it. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking gross. Yeah.